Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks for listening in on another episode. Or if this is your first time stopping by, I'm grateful to have you. This podcast is all about the getting started moments, the turning points that got each guest started on a new path toward happiness, the ups and downs of the journey, how they were able to commit to a change, and all the lessons learned along the way. I hope you all enjoyed this particular episode, so let's jump right in and get it started. On this week's episode, I welcome in Dan Pontefract, who is the founder and CEO of Pontefract Group, a firm that improves the state of leadership and organizational culture. He is the best-selling author of four books, Lead, Care, Win, How to Become a Leader Who Matters, Open to Think, The Purpose Effect, and Flat Army. A renowned speaker, Dan has presented at four different TED events and also writes for Forbes and Harvard Business Review. Dan is an adjunct professor at the University of Victoria, Gustafson School of Business, and has garnered more than 20 industry awards over his career. Dan is honored to be on the Thinker's 50 radar list. HR Weekly listed him as one of its 100 most influential people in HR. PeopleHum listed Dan on the top 200 thought leaders to follow, and Inc. Magazine listed him as one of the top 100 leadership speakers. His third book, Open to Think, won the 2019 Get Abstract International Book of the Year. Lead Care Win was a finalist for the same award in 2021. Previously as Chief Envisioner and Chief Learning Officer at TELUS, a Canadian telecommunications company with revenues of over 14 billion and 50,000 global employees, he launched the Transformation Office, the TELUS MBA, and the TELUS Leadership Philosophy, all award-winning initiatives that dramatically helped to increase the company's employee engagement to record levels of nearly 90%. Prior to TELUS, he held senior roles developing leaders, team members, and customers at SAP, Business Objects, and BCIT. Dan and his wife, Denise, have three children, aka goats, and live in Victoria, Canada. I enjoyed this interview so much. I'm so excited for everyone to get in and listen to this. Um, this was incredible. Dan's an unbelievable individual and a lot of great insight that he shares throughout this entire episode. So without further ado, please welcome in Dan Pontefract. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you. Hey, Brian. Great to be here. Thanks for the invite. Let's, uh, let's get into some cool stuff. Yeah, I'm excited to chat with you. You know, it's always funny preparing for these things because, you know, every guest obviously is so different from one another, interesting, you know, backgrounds and, and things that they're you know focused on. So I thought I'd do something with us today. And I wrote four words down. Now we're going to go in some other tangents, but I wrote four words down. Ironically, they happen to be all C's to start, but that doesn't mean anything. It's more just random. I'm going to give you a chance dealer's choice on where you want to start. So here's the four I wrote down. After doing some research, confidence, consistency, collaboration, and culture. Which one do you want to start with? Ooh, I like alliterations too. Uh, let's start with culture. Okay. Because for me, uh, culture is everything. And culture is arguably an organization's competitive strategy. So let's start with culture. Perfect. Door number four. Right. <laughs> I like it. So this is one thing on culture. And I, so I'm curious about one, and maybe this is laid out for everyone listening to start. How do cultures get damaged in the first place? Because everyone, we always think cultures are awesome. They're unbelievable. Like, hey, you know, we have a great culture. 
but most companies it seems like have damaged cultures or are leading that direction. Can you can you share your your thoughts of like how do they actually become damaged? What are some of the key indicators? Well, I think a lot of people have attribution error and think that their culture is great, first of all, and it's mm-hmm. not. So there's that. Um, to the question, though, however, do they? How do they become damaged? I mean, let's let's demarcate just for a second here. Cultures are made up of people. Like it's it's not um, it's it's not an invisibility. Culture is actually how people treat one another. And so, when you start, first of all, with that definition. <laughs> then you got to ask yourself, well, how are people treating one another? I mean, you've heard anywhere from LinkedIn to, you know, TED Talks, you know, people espousing that culture is what happens when the leader leaves the room. No, (laughs) no, that's not true. Culture is what happens when everyone's in the room or not in the room. I mean, it's, it's like, I mean... I mean, I guess I'm a Star Wars fan, so it's kind of like the force. It surrounds you. It's everywhere. So for me, it's all about relationship. It's all about treatment. Culture is about how the organization and thus its people interoperate uh, with one another. So to the question, how does it get affected? How do do people come disenfranchised or disaffected uh, at the way in which people are being treated and thus the culture? Well, it's just it's right there in the headline, right? We're yeah, not yeah. treating one another with that care or empathic kind of nature or, or mm-hmm. you know, concern, uh, kindness, civility. Uh, you know, we, we tend to think that our, if we're a leader, our employees are there to serve us. And we kind of get the equation wrong there. And so when a leader thinks that the team is there to serve the leader... Well, what happens is it becomes us, them. It becomes a situation in which the employees don't feel as if they're being treated well because the leader is often treating them like a number or asking them to draw blood from the stone and so on and so forth. So that's what it is for me. Like, honestly, Brian, it's about the relationship of one another and how we treat one another. And it's not, by the way, just leader and team member. It can be team member to team member, leader to Mm -hmm. leader. Uh, team member two leader, right? There's all the different permutations. Well, and and I think part of it, you know, is that whole idea of, and, and we, we can talk about values or whatever companies want to have their their statements or what have you, but it's really, and, and maybe you agree or disagree, I don't know, but based on what you're saying, right, is leaders, it, they're not above anyone. Yes, they might have a title difference or maybe different experiences, but everyone is kind of working toward the greater good of the organization. And when, when folks start being out of line in that, and that's where ego and, and those type of things come into play. I don't know why, when you were talking, it reminded me of um, something I, I heard Jordan Peterson say recently about like, if you have, you know, a bunch of people in a room and they're all like great, nice people and kind hearted, you're going to have kind hearted people, but you enter one bad person in that mix, the whole thing's going to get kind of blown up. Um, and I see this a lot with organizations I've been a part of, and, and probably you've seen this way more of just, you get one bad apple in there or two bad apples, and all of a sudden, it ruins the whole thing. Could you share a little bit about how important it is to get the right people? And if you don't have the right people, what do you do with them? Because it seems like people are scared to get rid of them. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, the notion of hire, the, hire for fit, to me, is not necessarily the right adage. What you want to be doing is hiring the right person to see if they're um, able 
to adapt, to, to learn, to be open, uh, to be empathic. So to me, it's not so much about, you know, fit as it is about, well, is that person amenable to our culture? Is that person amenable to what it is that we are espousing to create, uh, both as a culture, as a team, as a product, as a service, right? How we serve our stakeholders, our community, our clients, whatever. So I think you've got to ask those types of questions. And you might argue, well, Dan, that is fit. No, because again, I, I don't believe that everyone needs to be the same. Like you do have to come out, like all of a sudden that gets into groupthink and you don't want that either. Like you do want some good, uh, almost to go to one of your other C's, like confident uh, difference, right? In order to, to make sure that you are growing as a team, as a unit organization and as individuals. Now, if, if you're stuck, you know, with individuals whom aren't, able and willing to change. They don't embrace change. It's probably another C there that we should have thrown in there in terms of culture is that you, yeah. you have to be able to embrace change. Yeah. And, and so when you kind of are a leader and you see that the people are stuck, they're siloed and they're thinking, you know, they're unwilling to change or unwilling to learn and to grapple with what might be, then yeah, I mean, I have no problem with whacking people saying, hey, you know, you got to go. Because I think that's more important is to make sure that you do have, again, with differing opinions, because that's, to me, very important, um, a culture that is surrounded by people who feel confident to uh, ultimately say something and to speak up on the betterment and on behalf of the organization, the unit, the goal, the customer, community, whatever. Otherwise, then you've got a bunch of people who are on the flip side of your question, right, is a bunch of fraidy cats, you know, they're unable to um, speak up because they are fearful. And that's a whole other kettle of fish that we might want to get into. So it's it's a little bit of both, right? You got to have the confidence in which to be able to chime chime in. Uh, you, If you're a leader and they're, you know, you're looking for hire, I think you've got to hire the change quotient. You've got to hire the people who are willingly wanting to learn and, and suggest that they don't know everything so that they do come in with a little bit of humble pie and say, Oh, okay. Well, there's lots to learn here, and I'm okay with that. Yeah. And all of it to me screams right. What is it that leaders are doing to inculcate that culture of change, of confidence, right? Of 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 learning. And if not, then I think the leaders, you know, got to look in the mirror and ask themselves, well, what kind of leader am I? Yeah. When you know the interview process is always. I'm actually curious. I didn't think we'd go here, but again, on this podcast, we kind of go wherever it takes us sometimes. Sure. But from the interview process, sometimes you have, you know, maybe if you're interviewing a high level, you know, executive or something, you might have a lot more time with them. But sometimes for your average role, let's say, no offense on that, I'm just saying that the average role across an organization, you have maybe one, maybe two interviews, maybe there's some reference checks for the most part, but it doesn't seem like there's a ton of time to be able to pick so sometimes you don't see the full person. Do you find an issue with that or a problem with the way, I guess, interviewing and hiring is done these days? Or are there other approaches that you encourage different organizations you work with? Well, let's be clear, Brian. Like everybody from recruitment to leaders, HR to hiring managers are like stupid busy. Like it's it's insane what I see in my work with people's calendars and the way in which that they've they've piled way too much on in the name of efficiency, 
productivity and unwilling to actually define capacity. Mm. So that's a um, that's an existential and a systemic issue right across the board. So let's you know park that just for a second and what I see on a day to day basis working with teams and executives. But then you kind of like to your point, and let's let's pinpoint that. Um, yes. So what are we doing? Well, we're using AI and machine learning to try and vet through uh, people's application process, whether that's via LinkedIn or whatever service they use, right? To see, oh, what are the key words? Oh, collaboration. Oh, purpose. Like it's okay, whatever. So if you're telling me that that machine learning, the AI is doing the job of vetting the character, I mean, balderdash. It's nonsensical. So that's another curmudgeon Dan, cantankerous Dan comment that uh, you take it at uh, what it's worth. <laughs> so let's, let's get past that then and say, okay, well, there's no time and we got AI and ML coming in and playing out havoc, right, with the process. So now it comes back to, okay, so we're, now we're talking flesh to flesh or virtual to virtual. And we're now in a room with that individual. So what, what is it that you're doing uh, to ask the questions, right, about they're them, like the individual questions about what is it like they're going to do to treat people, the relationship building, the can you dig in on ego and id and find out a little bit more beneath the veneer or, you know, the, the layers of the onion to, to know that, OK, well, I'm assuming that they've applied for this role because they can do the role. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. OK, let's get past the skills set part. And maybe ask way more questions that, that really dig into that character. And I'm not just talking about, although it's important, things like scenario-based, et cetera. And I think the, the role of recruitment and hiring managers of following up with past employers and leaders who employed them, I think is, is critical. I, I think we've lost time in the art of doing that as well. But I, I really think that those character-based questions are really key because you're now asking them to come into the the team of which, to your point, and it's a credible point, one bad apple can ruin a pie. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, as much as there might be eight apples in that pie to make up the apple pie, the one is like, oh, God, that piece sucked because uh, what the hell? We just all bruise and gross. Mm-hmm. So you can do that to your pie very quickly by not spending the time on the what the ingredients are. And that's, I think, back to character to really mess up a metaphor there. Well, and what's interesting, too, because when someone's in an organization for a while, generally you'll see them, you know, maybe move departments, go to a different role that they weren't qualified for necessarily. But it's like, man, this person has, you know, insert, again, whatever character, you know, characteristics like, oh, they'd be great here. They'll be a quick learner, do whatever. But it seems like you don't get that in the first initial stage of the interviewing process. So you lose out on those great people just because maybe, yeah, they're not as talented as the person next door to them that's interviewing, but they may be a better fit ultimately because they're a quicker learner. Let's go to your other C, one of them, the collaboration piece. So if you think now about the culture of the organization, if it's siloed, if it's, you know, non or uncollaborative, if you will, kind of making up a word there, then, you know, the hiring manager, the recruiter in one unit, whilst that individual may not fit, and I know I'm using the word differently here, but they may not fit um, for that unit and for that role to what you thought they might have been doing because there was just some sort of thing that didn't work out based on either skill or perhaps their character in that particular environment. What's to say that that individual, because we've spent all this time in the pre-work and the pre-hiring and then the hiring and then the onboarding, 
might not be a or could be a pretty good fit over there in the other unit or another unit. And so if our organizations are siloed or if our organizations don't care about the the wherewithal of the organization itself and thus discard that individual from potentially making a huge impact um, on in another unit somewhere, I think that's you have a fiduciary responsibility as a leader, recruitment, hiring or otherwise, to try to like make sure that that individual succeeds in the role in which they've hired for. But if it's not working out, don't just like whack them and say that's that's it. You do have, I think, uh, an ultimate responsibility to say maybe over there and maybe I'm going to go talk with, um, you know, Hussein or Farhad or Julie over in marketing because maybe it didn't fit in sales. But, man, they really they could seriously. Wow. Could they do a job over there in marketing? I know they've got this open role and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's to me, the two are related here. We kind of went into the role of recruiting and fit and hiring, et cetera. But culture Right is yeah. is about relationship, and if you're uncollaborative and aren't a collaborative organization, why would you stick your head up out of the foxhole to see if marketing could use this candidate? Maybe not working out sales, and if you got that type of DNA, well, now you see how collaboration and culture uh, are kind of like a yin yang. Yeah. Well, and and do you find the difference? That, you know, I have a lot of founders and early stage startup organizations. You know, folks that come on the podcast and and listen in. I see that totally different than the larger organization. And I don't want to say the larger organization is just kind of trying to hit a number like, oh, we got to hire this many people or whatever. But that startup founder, they're going to spend a lot more time hiring one person where a large organization, let's say that has over 5,000 employees or something to hire maybe 10, right? They're going to take less time, I feel. I could be wrong, but I'm just using anecdotal evidence here. But do you feel like the startup founder and, and those folks with very few employees are going to look at interviewing and hiring in a, in a drastically different way? Or do you find it's comparable? I, I find it's comparable. I mean, you're just talking scale when you get to a larger organization, whether it's 500 or you know 50,000. It's just scale. It's the same sort of notion here. Now, you could argue like, okay, well, Dan, you're talking about one to 20 people. And you know when you add you know one individual, you've just increased your personnel by 5%. So that's a pretty big ad, don't you think, yeah. Dan? Like, yeah, of course, but it still comes back to the same principles. So A, what's our culture? B, are we hiring for character? And does that match with the culture? So that individual. C, are we collaborative? So what's the, you know, what's the hiring um, practice for that mm-hmm. zero to 20 uh, person startup? Is it collaborative and using the culture so that everyone kind of has a say so as not to uproot the, the apple pie, if you will, by potentially hiring a bad character uh, in, in terms of where our organization is, sorry, in its, um, in its evolution? So, again, when I'm working with startups, I'm often saying, well, you know, pretty good idea to have fo- focus group kind of group-based interviewing. Why wouldn't you have, like, three sessions with five to six people, it may seem daunting if you're the potential applicant, right? But, you know, you're asking questions and maybe going for coffees or walks or whatever. And you're, you're, you're actually asking questions as a team about, well, this is our culture. What's your character? Do you think that this is good for you? Is it good for us? And you kind of have that type of rapport. Uh, and that builds up, you know, the notion of having currency and ownership in how that organization as a startup is actually growing. And I think that's many organizations that are startups miss that beat as well. Yeah. 
Or uh, you mentioned something about having like the focus groups and stuff, which is really neat. Is there, is there like any use case that you found is really successful? Something unique some organization did in the interview or hiring process that, you know, maybe more people should be doing. Well, I think it's just that the one that some of the startups that I've been fortunate to work with in the past or even recently know how important hiring is when you're small, again, in that zero to 50, let's say. And again, the, the whole notion of the uh, of the one apple that might be rotten can seriously affect the culture, in this case, of the organization. But it, again, it apply, like I'm just talking about scale, if you kind of flip it over to the mm-hmm. larger you know, SMBs or mid-market or enterprise, like that 50-person startup, think of it as maybe over there in a medium-sized company, well, maybe the unit is 50 people. Right. So again, I think there are similarities. You just kind of think about where is the scale at this. So from a use case perspective, when I'm thinking about the startups at the zero to 50 range, right, I think that is the use case. What is the type of culture that we espouse and, and that often kind of manifests in how we hire? Yeah. So are we uncollaborative and it's just up to the, the startup founder who's in charge of all the hires? Or does that startup founder or founders, do they empower you know, the organization such that the right culture of character, of purpose, of working together, of collaboration, another of your C's, Another C of the instilling confidence in the organization to let the organization make the right decision on those potential new hires. I'm all for that. Be honest, Brian. We're, uh, I don't, I don't know where to actually take this question, but I'll just throw this out there. I don't know. It's going to be more of me. It's kind of meandering down this path because I'm, I'm curious, how do you turn a big ship around that's going in the wrong direction? So when you go into help an organization, leadership's not great. They, their culture's all over the place. They don't have any idea of maybe what their values are. They've lost them over time. How challenging is that? And then is there a, like, we start here to, before you can even go to part, you know, part B or, or number two or whatever? It's a great question. Uh, a couple of things. There's no real sequence because every organization is different. Uh, so some principles, I suppose. One of them is uh, you got to be able to uh, allow yourself to kill it. Uh, you got to be allow yourself the ability to say, no, we got to stop doing this. And far too often, you know, an organization continues to add without subtracting, mm. which then creates uh, the burdensome load or the imbalance of a load on its people. And that's one of the first things that I start asking is, okay, well, have you done a stop, start, continue? And what particular are we going to stop? What are we going to kill? And have you asked the organization, so this is like a second principle, right? Have you asked the organization what's working, what's not? Have you done an organizational or team stop, start, continue? And more often than not, it's the stops that are the most important. Not what are we going to do new and what might we continue, but what are the, what are the, they used to call them the sacred cows, right, back in the day. So what are those sacred cows that, you know, why are we still doing it this way? And whatever the it is, right, that could be hiring, that could be lack of collaboration, that could be everyone threw in Slack and we have no idea why we have to use Slack now or whatever, right? All these sacred cows. So ask your people, engage and explore with them, if you will, on what's, what's working, particularly what's not, what should we stop uh, and, and you know, kind of go from there. And then once you're basically what I'm asking, right, is you need data, 
And all too often, Brian, when the annual employee engagement survey goes out, no one looks at the anecdotals, which is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. So what are you doing to have these um, almost like remediation type focus groups and discussions to figure out from your people, well, what's the problem here? Like, are we that clueless that we're not going to ask you for your opinion? Okay, well, then we're clueless. So, you know, shame on us. So once you've got data, once you've got um, an indication to the organization, you do want to stop them, some things that you do want to maybe start some things that are new, but helpful towards the kind of the culture of where we're going, what it is that we're you know needing to do as a, as a group here. Then you kind of start saying, okay, well, what is it that we, that sort of is missing that does need to ultimately um, be either tweaked or actually implemented? So things like, you know, do we have organizational norms or team norms? And what the hell are norms, right? So I'm, you know, I'm talking about things like, Brian, um, you know, meetings. So what are our norms as an organization for meetings? Particularly as we go into this world of, you know, hopefully post-pandemic, but endemic world of where we're at with uh, coronavirus and COVID-19. So meetings. So some people are at home, some people are in the office, maybe some people are somewhere in between. Okay, so how are meetings going to be conducted organizationally now? That provides what I call commanding clarity for the org. And if you don't know, then what's happening is that you've got some questions of the, of the employees. It's not clear. They're not sure when we're supposed to be in the office, when the meetings are going to occur. So I'm just coming into the office to be on Zoom or you know, Teams or WebEx for a meeting. Is that clear? And I'm just bringing up one little example of just meetings in terms of the norms of our culture. Well, uh, right. another one, yeah. well, another one like email, DMs, right? Slack messages, whatever. Like, when are we supposed to respond to them? Like, what's a good message? Do we have a cadence? Is, am I allowed to not answer texts at five o'clock or do I have to answer them from the boss? Like, what are all the norms when it comes to communication, let alone norms for things like meetings? So when you, I guess, Brian, when you're kind of going through, you're, ask, you're asking yourself, well, what's the culture we want to be? Yeah. What's our collaboration principles? Am I confident as a leader to ask the organization what's working, what's not, what needs to get killed or stopped? And then ultimately what needs to be started or tweaked and things like meetings and communications uh, practices are norms, which far too often are not defined. Yeah. And what do you get? Confused. We got a lot of C's here, Brian. Confused employees. (laughs) Well, and confused and, and, and I would say frustrated. I was actually, when you mentioned that, it got me thinking, I was talking with a friend last week and they're like, yeah, well, you know, been obviously working from home for two years. And they're like, yeah, we got to go back in the office. I'm like, oh, that's cool. How many days a week? Well, it's two or three. It's still up in the air. I'm like, okay, what are you going back for? Because they said, hey, we're in meetings all day. I'm like, what are you going back for? Like, well, I always have a lot of meetings. I'm like, so everyone's going to be back in the office? Well, not everyone. Some people are in the area and some, some like, who, yeah, to your point, who cares if you do the Zoom meeting in the office or doing it at home in your pajamas? Like, who really cares? It's an internal work meeting. So it's it's almost like me, and and this is partly maybe you're seeing this obviously with the great resignation and all this that's that's popular now, but all these organizations like the old way of thinking is really battling against kind of a new era, and it's like who's going to win out here, right? Is it going to be the old thinking, everyone come back in the office, or is it going to be this hybrid approach of how we uh, how we want to communicate, you know, effectively going forward? 
because you don't need to be in the office. I've noticed I've been what two plus years since I've been in the office. I don't need to go back. No reason. Right. Well, and what you're getting at is is back to the first C. It's like kind of why I suppose I, I tipped my hat and said, let's start with culture. Yeah. What's the culture we're trying to craft and create in this post-pandemic, endemic world? Like what basically what is, um, I've said this before in a talk last week, actually, I said the future of work is now. Get over it. Yeah. And so yeah. if the future of work is now, what we're hearing uh, and seeing and feeling is employees almost like there's a rebuttal you know we can talk great resignation later if you want but the rebuttal is i call it the great contemplation what the hell were we doing prior to the pandemic right like why were we so hierarchical uh why couldn't we have flexibility with the where of work the how of work was quite predominantly um poor because of the data that suggested we're very disengaged that, you know, our boss doesn't really care about us, that there's not the relationships and the sense of purpose and meaning that I want from both my organization and the role that I have in that organization. And it's all up for grabs now. Yeah. It's all up for grabs. So if we can craft uh, the right culture of collaboration, of confidence, um, and, and set a tone that is flexible, but that is proactive, that is nurturing, I still think that we'll be able to hit, if not exceed, goals and targets and performance uh, KPIs, et cetera, in a far more humane way. Well, it, you are right, because that whole adage of like, you go to work, it's you know the nine to five, Monday through Friday kind of thing. But it, I think we've all come to realize is like, what, one, do we need five days? Is that necessary? You know, depend, and I think it depends on role, right? And in, in the organization, some certain roles you have to be on at certain times because of clients or whatever. But the reality is, yeah, could you get your work done in three or four days? Or if you want to work a Sunday because, you know, Thursday is an important day for your family, you know, like why we become so stuck to like these certain norms. And I know it goes back to the old factory working days and, and those type of things. But um, I think that changing of the guard, I, I do like what you said too, because it, it made me think of, I think it was uh, Elon Musk who mentioned now, whether it's, whether it's a good way to do this or not, but he's like, Hey, if you're in a meeting and you don't need to be there, you're free to just get up and leave. And again, whether we, we want to agree with that fully or not, but the whole point of like, if you have rules in place and everyone knows the rules of the game, you're not making anyone feel bad. You're not being rude or disrespectful. That's just how the organization was set up so it could concede and be more efficient. At least that's how I look at it. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, what you're referring to in Musk's point there is a norm. And what Musk is referring to in the norm is this is the culture that we're trying to, um, you know, live. And so if, however, in organizations that that aren't uh, SpaceX, Tesla, wherever he's working these days, um, if if your culture is not set in a way that has, you know, an open kind of leadership model that people know what's expected of themselves as self, but also what's expected of the leaders and the in-between, which is how the work gets done. And those are the norms I'm referring to. If, if the employee doesn't know and doesn't understand, uh, isn't been asked for their opinion on how to craft those uh, they're not being like, you know, uh, reviewed and analyzed and maybe 
update it every X number of quarters or months or what have you. And if it's just stoic and it's in set in stone, we're never going to reevaluate or go back to them. That's not a culture I want to work for. And I can tell you in what I call this great contemplation moment, there are millions, millions of workers that are right now contemplating, is this where I want to hang my hat? Yeah. Is this the place for me? And so the, the earlier question about, well, Dan, when you go into organizations and you kind of figure, well, where do you start? Well, it's, it's what we've been talking about the last 10 minutes, all the aforementioned points. It's uh, stop, start, continue. What are people saying in terms of what we want this culture to be? What are the norms of this culture? What are the practices and behaviors of how we're going to interoperate with one another? Thus, you know, our uh, leadership and leadership of self attributes. And all, are we all doing this for something greater than just shareholder return or profiteering? Yeah. And that, I think that's another little segue that we need to be cognizant of. And that is... There's a heck of a lot more existential review of purpose and meaning of self and where I work than ever before. Well, one of the things actually, maybe that gets us into the great resignation. I'd love to just get your opinion on that and, and thoughts uh, for a minute. But it made me think about, and because you give all these talks, and I'm, I'm sure you're at cocktail parties and people pull you aside and 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 want to ask stuff. We're talking a lot on the organization side, but as we all know, right, if you're interviewing for a job, if you're some employee, sometimes it's kind of like the Wizard of Oz, you got to pull back the curtain, it's hard to understand, because it all looks great on the outside. Are there certain things you would encourage people that are looking for new jobs to either maybe it's a questions to ask or certain ways to search to be able to uh, make sure it's the right fit up front? Because sometimes that's a hard decision as well, if they only have a couple tries at it, you know? Yeah. I agree. And I think, Brian, no matter what, it always starts with you. It starts with you. If you're unclear on who you are, what you want to be when you, quote, grow up, uh, or the, the stops along the way that you want to make, if you're unclear, unsure of how you want to be known uh, when you enter a room, when you leave a room, when you sign off on a text and a DM or a Zoom call, like if you have no idea about you, you got to start doing that homework first. Because if you don't, you're walking in blind to the job interview, to the pursuit of a new role in a new organization. And it's going to be hapless. Like it's just, it's, it's a futile expedition. Don't get on that boat. Now, if you want to do the hard work and ask yourself those existential type of questions and figure out, all right, like, what am I doing to develop myself? What am I doing to define my id my sense of personal purpose? What am I doing to decide how I'm going to show up each and every interaction? like, what's my moral compass? What's my behavior going to be? Once you know you, now you can start adjudicating against role and organization. Now you can start adjudicating and say, well, what am I seeking in that org that's going to fulfill and fuel my personal id? Like for some people that like higher sense of meaning and purpose in that organization is, is like tantamount to, to being a movie star. Like I'm a rock star. I, I want, I want to be on stage. I want to be making a whole bunch of money or purpose, whatever with that org, because they're doing great things in society. And it doesn't have to be 
Salesforce or Ikea or, you know, Ford Motors, right? It can be small, medium-sized organizations that no one knows about in your community. And it's so long as for you that what that organization is doing in community or uh, with, with the society, environmental, whatever it is that your arbiters are, it doesn't matter to me now. I'm just providing the example. That's going to matter more in your adjudication process. So you're like, check I like what's going on in that org. I'm that's that's gonna fuel me, but th- but then honestly, Brian, then we then you're gonna start talking about well, role. Like, <laughs> does this role matter to me? And the questions I would ask people to think about is, ultimately, it comes down for me this, the word value. I'm sorry, it's not C. Um, so the word value. So here's what I would ask you to think about as you're looking for that new role and assuming you've adjudicated yourself and you've adjudicated the org that it's somewhere you'd like to hang your hat. So in the role, are you allowed to create value? Do you know what it is that you're supposed to be doing? And do you have the runway, the, the, the leg room, the opportunity to create value? Because I think it's really important. If we're too transactional in our roles, it doesn't feel very value-based, uh, does it? So value, like, are you able to create value, number one? And number two is, do you feel value? Do you think that that boss and that organization will value you, uh, what you bring to the table, your input, your ideas? And it's like a two-pronged value approach here, right? So I'm able to create value, value being obviously a noun, and am I feeling valued, mm-hmm. which is not a noun, right? It's a, it's a feeling. And so when you do that, and you can ask those types of questions, I hope, in the reverse interview, so you're now interviewing the employer of uh, the role of the organization, I hope that you do uh, think about the word value in the two-pronged way. Well, and you agree. I think a lot of people, I, I could probably put myself in, in this seat probably in, in years past, was like, you need a job where you're like, I really want to work for this company. And those red, it's almost like dating, right? Those red flags often, because um, I always, I, I like when you said kind of that feeling, that gut feeling. It's like, if you're interviewing with who's going to be your potential manager and you don't get a good vibe, that should be a pretty good indicator of probably not the right fit. But most people be like, well, the pay is good or whatever, you know, insert whatever. And you kind of almost make up for it. In that way, um, I kind of <laughs> have you ever heard a uh, guy Kawasaki's mall test, the shopping mall test? Have you oh, ever yes. heard of this? Yeah. yeah. So basically, it's like, yeah, the you know, are you going to run up to this person and be like, oh my gosh, how are you doing or whatever? If it's not that type of relationship up front, how do you think it's going to be like in day 77, you know, like when they then you know, when the when the uh, foot to the fire and you kind of have to hit your numbers or whatever? Mm-hmm. So I, I just don't, I mean, that's something do, do you see a lot as well, folks struggling with? actually making that decision for the wrong reasons? Yeah, I mean, let's be clear. I'm not a naive, bald-headed Canadian fool here that we don't need a paycheck to survive. There's rent to pay, mortgage to pay, vacations to get, you know, groceries to buy. Like, I get it. Like, there's a point in which you're like, okay, I I just need a job. And that's kind of what I'm getting at, is that at some point, you do have to do that homework and say, Mm -hmm. well, do I just need the job? Uh, for the paycheck, and, 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 and I can park myself in this mentally for X number of months or quarters. Okay, uh, you know what? I'm going to learn whatever I can from this job because it's just, it's a step. 
towards where I want to actually be. And I've, I've, I mean, I've accepted jobs mm-hmm. uh, and I know other people have accepted jobs because it's a learn, as long as you mentally turn it into a learning moment and know that, well, they're not going to fuel and or fill my bucket of purpose and meaning and the things that I need, but I'm going to use this as a stage, as a stepping stone, then I, I say, do that. I say, do that, Brian. Mm-hmm. But when we ultimately accept that it's just a job and not a step, and that this just a job has turned into a career, and that career has turned into a complete and utter lack of meaning and purpose, yeah. uh, that's, that's awful. And that's, unfortunately, I see that a fair bit because people will be locked in to pay and benefits and compensation, et cetera. And, and again, I'm not negating people's need to pay off their mortgage or their rent or their car payment or whatever. Like, I get it. It's a huge balancing act of how happy and engaged and fulfilled can I be in my role with the organization versus what I need to do to buy my kids' shoes for their soccer game next weekend. Mm-hmm. Right? With the great resignation, do you find it's more folks now have had this time, maybe, you know, obviously with all that's happened in the world the last few years and still happening, um, do you find it's the purpose and meaning why most folks are like, am I really sitting in this role? Like, it, I know there's more, I mean, gosh, if you have the opportunity to look for jobs and you can move and go to organ, you're, you're in the top percentage of folks in the world anyways, like you, you should be grateful. So are folks doing that because of that meaning and purpose, do you think? Or are there other reasons why they're, you know, not jumping ship, but they're looking at alternatives? You know, I um gr- glad you, Brian, brought up the great resignation. And this may sound con controversial, uh, but I, I, the data suggests that there isn't, quote, a great resignation. And I know it's going to sound like, what? I thought the data did. Well, there's a couple things going on. First of all, um, when, when you look at it, it's from a knowledge worker perspective, uh, which is kind of what we've been talking about. So we're not talking about frontline. We're not talking about healthcare. We're not talking about uh, retirees per se, if we just talk about knowledge workers, there isn't a very significant great resignation happening. It's just about on par. It's a little bit higher, but just about on par with the BLS data, the Canadian data, the European Union data of what it was pre-pandemic, pretty much. So the great resignation, its headline is awful because really where uh, a lot of the um, quitting uh, is going on is in those frontline worker roles. Healthcare, restaurant service, CPG, you know, the, the malls, all of that. Like, they're just like, forget this. This is insane. You aren't paying me enough. We're not unionized or whatever their qualm may be. And there is a mass resignation going on there. Huge. Like, it's out of control. And I'd be worried if you're, you know, a frontline company, because it, it continues right now, at least at this recording. And then the other bucket, which is interesting because there are a lot of knowledge workers here, but it is those aforementioned retirees. And the ones typically pre-pandemic who wanted to retire, but they're like, actually, I'm not ready to retire. I think I'm going to work 10 or 20 hours a week doing whatever. Uh, That could be in an IBM or a high-tech company or whatever doing part-time work, or it could be, you know, working in the library, their local library or the grocery store and their stock and shelves. They are not going back into the workforce. They basically said, eh, no thanks. 
your culture sucks. I don't want any to, anything to do with that. You know, my house appreciated. I'm going to live off of that, you know, appreciation in my house and I'm right, good. Right. Right? right. So that's kind of what I see is what's the quote, great resignation. It's not, it's kind of is, but more for frontline. Now, what I do believe is happening through my research and through other data points that I've been able to glom onto is that, yeah, there's a bit of a contemplation going on in the knowledge worker realm. And you're going to see a heck, because here we are, at least in this recording, we're the beginning of April, you know, Q1 of 2022, the pay raises, the bonuses, the stock options, all of that, if you're in that situation, have all been played out now. And now people are like, wait a second, is this where I want to hang my hat? Right. And conversation after conversation is really about that right now. It's like, is this... Am I fulfilled? Is this organization enough? Do I have it in me to continue on? Is this just a paycheck? Or maybe I need something more in my life. And that's what's going on. So you do think more of it's like the mainstream media, it's a nice talking point then of like, hey, everyone's everyone's moving to other companies. No one can find anyone to work, those type of things. It is those two buckets, the retirees not going back into the workforce, which is creating a huge issue. It is the non-knowledge worker types, like frontline team members, who are having a huge issue with like not being paid well. You know, the hours are awful. The leadership is bad. It's just it's toxic, and that's another huge cohort. And then what you're starting to see, however, yes, a bit of an uptick, right, on the knowledge worker saying, um, yeah, maybe I need to go there. And when I say go there, I mean jump ship. Here's one of the ones that are starting to take shape right now as we record this is sales, account execs. There is like a bloodbath of poaching going on right now in the account exec world because what happened prior to the pandemic? Sales, right, when they weren't in sales, like doing calls or whatever they're doing, were sort of asked to come into the office and to, you know, grind away at their desk or whatever. And there's certain organizations that are still saying, we need you to come into the office now when you're not on a sales call or you're not on the phone. Can you do your work from the office? And there's salespeople like, "Uh, no, (laughs) what are you crazy? I've been able to do this for two years. Like, why do I have to be in a building? So it's little things like that. Like when we go back to culture and collaboration and respect and relatability that you're going to see, um, at least in the knowledge worker space, I think an uptick uh, in movement. And it's, I think a lot of movement always is predicated by what's going on in sales. The, uh, yeah, the, 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 just to touch on that, cause I'm in enterprise sales and have been for a lot of years. So I, I fully agree with you. There's a lot of that. Um, and I hear from my network uh, about, yeah, they're asking me to go back in the office. So they're doing this. And I'm like, Oof, okay, well, do you want to go back? And do you want to have that 45 minute commute and, you know, have the water cooler talk? I mean, it, because, you know, we, we have been spoiled again, the, I, I look at it as being very grateful to be able to work from home and, and do various things I want to do. But I think this also comes back to how much I, I was talking about the, the workday weeks, how much time was wasted being in the office? Totally. Could you get the work done in less time if you're more efficient and can just kind of block it out? Because I think of all the water cooler talk and all the, you know, you gotta maybe I gotta run out to get lunch or anything like that that you don't really or you're not really doing now. Okay, what's wrong with that? Why do we have to kind of watch everyone each minute what they're doing? You know, who cares? I have a, a theory, but I also have a, a recommended model. And so the theory, okay. of course, is leaders have 
refused to disentangle themselves from what it means to be a leader pre-pandemic to post-pandemic, which is I need to see you such that I know that you're doing work. So they can't get past that, or many of them can. There's lots of great leaders out there that are, in fact, doing a good, better job at leading, but there's that. But the, the accommodation, I suppose, the meeting in the middle, the compassion that I have for both sides uh, would be as follows. Um, you may have heard the 232 model, you know, two days at home, three days in the office, two days for weekend. Uh, I'd like to extend that just a little bit further. And I guess I'm, I'm I, I guess I'll call it the two, 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 one model. So two days for the weekend, uh, two days in the office where the employer says, these are the days we want you in the office. And then basically comes the two and the one. So two days, you get to decide when you want to work from home. And then one day, and now you can do that in like two half days or whatever, you decide when you should be coming in the office because maybe your team needs a meeting and you're just going to have that on Friday afternoon. Hmm. So if that sort of accommodation is that the employer knows that the team or all employees, whatever, are going to come in, I don't know, Brian, like Tuesdays and Thursdays, that's company, you know, everyone's in the office or team, everyone's in the office days. And then you allow the employee, the team member, to then say, okay, that's cool. I know that. So you want me in the office another day? Okay, so I get to choose now, like maybe Monday mornings and Friday afternoons, and then the rest, like I can be wherever I want. For a knowledge worker who doesn't need to be in the front line or on an engineering line or a production line or in a restaurant, like I think that's pretty cool flexibility, and that's the type of culture of collaboration where you're listening and creating something that helps both sides. And maybe uh, think of one thing if I could ask, what happens, especially with with nowadays, obviously a lot of companies that are national, global, they might have workers that are all remote. They don't work near a technical office. How do you find, again, I don't know if I would care about this, but just in general, like someone might be like, well, why do I have to go in the office, you know? Tom doesn't have to go in or whatever, you know what I'm saying? Like, do you find there's a contention point there between employees when those things start to happen, depending on, you know, basically location of where they decide to live? There is a contention, you know, bone to pick if the norms aren't set up in advance. So, but you go back to culture. If you are setting up your hybrid or flexible work norms with the organization to suggest that, okay, so at headquarters and in our three main satellite cities of which we've got X number of employees, we're going to employ that 2221 model. But for those of you that, you know, you're, there's just a couple of you in the city or you're working from Toledo, but headquarters, you know, is in uh, Miami. Well, you know what? People who are remote, yeah, that, whatever. We don't care. You know, like it's obviously we don't need you to go into an office mm. two 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 one or whatever our model is because you're different, and that's totally cool. I'm working with several multinationals and global organizations that are, in fact, defining their organizational norms based on just that. What is in the major cities and what's in the ones where people, because of the pandemic, decided to move back to Toledo because they're sick of living in Miami. And whatever, right? I don't know whoever could be sick of living in Miami, but you get that point, right? <laughs> right. Um, so yes, but it goes back to norms, Brian. Like if we are un- unwilling to have those conversations and focus grouping and trying to figure out what the right culture and norms are, you're, you're going to have people uh, contemplating and then leaving and saying, forget this. Like, what is, I, I don't need this. I can go do this somewhere else. 
This is Dan. This has been good. I, I didn't realize the word culture was going to take us down the, the whole rabbit hole for the uh, entire conversation, which is, hey, which is great because I know we hit on a lot of other stuff. Let, let me ask you this here is, um, so if if I'm a leader listening to this podcast and I recognize there's challenges or whatever there is in our organization, what's the first step I could take? What What is something I could do actionable today or this week to enact some change? And it may be personal to them. It may be something they share with, you know, other folks in their executive leadership. I don't know. Anything you would share to help them kind of get started in the right direction? Yeah. Um, take your pulse <laughs> and figure out if you have a heart. It, 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 honestly, like it sounds uh, egregious, my comment, but we, if you're not using your heart, uh, and that asking yourself, well, how much do I actually care about the team? What, what is it that I should be doing that allows there to be a rapport that's more than just boss subordinate? What is it I'm like, do I know the names of my employees' kids? Uh, do I, what do I do to recognize that I care, that I actually care, that it's not just a job? And when leaders cross the chasm that it is no longer just about profitability and, uh, and meeting the metrics and the KPIs, that those, in fact, are outcomes of the type of culture and behavior that you're crafting as a caring, uh, engaging, empathic type of leader, the one, i.e., with the heartbeat, uh, that's what I often say. What is your pulse check, if you will, your your heartbeat legacy, and start there. That's a great place. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't, if you don't have a heart, if you're if you're not compassionate, empathetic, yeah, it's a hard place to uh, you know. It's hard to move forward. I think so. I, I totally agree with you there. And and so and I'll end with this, Brian. Like, why? It's because. When you're reviewing and assessing what you want your post-pandemic leadership style to be, we have gone through a gong show over the past two plus years. And we're kind of still in it. Like people think it's over. It's not. We're still got a ways to go with variants and so on. And then you think about just some of the world's existential crises, right, that have popped up um, from... Uh, EDI issues to obviously Ukraine and so many other societal issues from tornadoes to weather to environment to so on. Like there's a lot on the shoulders and the minds of employees. And more so than ever, I think, from mainstream to social media, like we are bombarded by what's not going well. So that's where I come from. I come from the fact that if that leader is caring, they'll know that there is far more that the employee is enduring than they'll ever admit. And so it's incumbent upon the leader to care. And this has been great. Where can everyone say hello to you, wave online? What's the, what's the best spot to connect? If you ever find your way to the Northwest in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, look me up and we'll go for a microbrewery IPA. Uh, that's where I live. Otherwise, I guess uh, it sounds shrill, but uh, Google me, uh, Dan Pontifrac, or just my website, danpontifrac.com.
Awesome. Dan, this was a lot of fun. I certainly appreciate you coming on and, uh, and sharing a lot of your wisdom here. This is uh, helpful for everyone. You know, Brian, I just want to commend you. Like, it's important to have these types of conversations. I'm glad what you're doing with your podcast, but you're clearly uh, a leader who already cares based on our discourse. This wasn't, which I really enjoy. It was discourse. It was a great fireside chat, not here's six questions and tee me up. Uh, I much prefer people who are well-versed and who care in what is the, the good work that's needed in our organization. So right back at you. Hey everyone, just one more quick thing before you skip along in your day. You know, if you do enjoy this content or other things that I've put out or just enjoy learning more and trying to adapt your thinking uh, to become happier each and every day, there's a couple of things that you may benefit from. Um, if you go to my website, brianandreco.com forward slash subscribe, you can sign up for my newsletter that goes out once a week. And that's really a digest of a lot of information that I gather throughout the weeks, whether it's a new video that I think could be informative or a podcast that's been valuable to me, book that I might read, etc. Um, secondly, I blog three times a week, and these are more micro blogs, one to five minute reads, short digestible blogs that'll send right to your inbox on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday morning. So check that out on my website, brianandreco.com forward slash subscribe if you think it's something you might enjoy. I hope you all have a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Mm-hmm.